from the First Corinthians 10. If you are visiting with us, our general practice is to go through books of the Bible to squeeze out what God has intended for the uh, from the author that wrote these that wrote these inspired scriptures. And we're in First Corinthians 10, working through this book of First Corinthians, of course. And it comes in a section of scripture. Uh, in the book itself, that is really uh, one unit, chapters 8 through 10, where Paul has talked about the need for Christians to identify with the world around them, to be all things to all people. And he used some pictures, such as sports, to challenge his readers to commit the energy they need to and accept the discipline required to reach the world. And in this section of Scripture we're looking at today, chapter 10, he then will talk about some of the problems that might come up with that identification. You can identify with other cultures in regard to food and clothing and other things. Uh, uh, and, And some of those things are relatively easy to navigate. But then... Paul will, will, will drill down into the worship of the world and how do you connect with that? And where are the lines there? Issues related in the culture of that day to the Jews and, 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 and Greeks here at the center of, of, of the attention of discussion. So Paul's going to take, uh, he's going to guide us through four actions to help us think biblically about the issue. And they are uh, remember, learn, run, and imitate. This passage of Scripture, I believe, teaches us that God wants our undivided loyalty for the sake of the advance of the Gospel in His eternal plan in human history. God wants our undivided loyalty for the sake of the advance of the Gospel in His eternal plan in human history. We saw in chapter 8 as Paul uh, uh, ministered there to the Corinthians, he, he told them that there was an issue that was dividing the Corinthian church. And the issue was, what do you do in that culture and in that day, in the city of Corinth, where there were many temples to all kinds of false gods, and one of the things they would do at those temples was offer sacrifices. And offer sacrifices, they, they would uh, 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 slaughter an animal to appease their, their false god, their idol. And the meat that was left over from that animal, then they would sell in the marketplace or they would sell uh, in in, in a sort of temple restaurant and it would be relatively cheap in that day. And so meat wasn't something that everybody always ate all the time, like we do many times a day. I mean, just about all of us have a meat uh, at our at our normal dinners at least once a day. Though so I understand not everybody eats meat, uh, but uh, that was that was the that was that was a special thing for them. And so what was uh, was something that they would participate in quite a bit. And Paul says in verses one through six, we are to love others. We are going to serve others by. First, thinking about God, setting our eyes on God and thinking through who God is. And he lays that out in chapter 8, 1 through 6 in dealing with this issue. Because if we have a right view of God, then we can have a right view to help build a foundation then to relate to others. And then in verses 7 through 13, he tells them to love others by then serving them as sacrificially, setting yourself aside for the sake of the gospel, to not uh, have, have stumbling blocks, to not build walls to the gospel, but to be able to connect people to the gospel, serve others sacrificially in love just as Christ did. And then two weeks ago, last uh, two, two Sundays ago, we went through chapter nine, and I wanted to divide chapter nine up, but it's such a, a it, if you divide it up, you lose some of the continuity of the thought. 
And so in chapter 9, we saw really, really four things here that Paul says if we're going to live cross-centered lives, and if we are going to, we are going to fulfill the great commission to the world by loving God, loving neighbors, and making disciples of all nations, we're going to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission, then we must live a life that is centered on the cross. We must live the life of Jesus, the cross-centered life. And so we looked through four things in 1 Corinthians 9. We saw that we are to be all in supporting the Gospel. We are to support the Gospel wholeheartedly. In chapter 9, 1-14. through 14. And Paul lists some of the things that he should have been able to expect from the Corinthians and their support wholeheartedly for him in the Gospel. But then he says um, uh, that he has chosen to set aside anything that would be a stumbling block for the Corinthians for the sake of the Gospel. So if we're to support the Gospel wholeheartedly, we also then, as people who are to minister the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and His soon return, then we are to serve in the Gospel. We are to serve in the Gospel without reserve. We are not to serve in the gospel uh, uh, if there are things attached. If I if, if I have this uh, provided for me, if I don't have this, we are to serve in the gospel unreservedly. We are to be a living sacrifice and serve the minister of the life of Christ in that way. And the way we do that is in verses twenty four through twenty seven. We are to see the eternal reward of the gospel. And at the end of chapter nine, Paul. You brings up these illustrations, these Olympic illustrations of running in a race or of boxing and shadow boxing and, and the discipline of, of the body that needed to, to, to um, uh, prepare and train for that. And Paul says this, he says, we're to run to win the prize. We're to set our eyes on the goal of standing before Jesus Christ and hear His words say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're to run for. That's the prize, the reward of Jesus of all eternity. But we're to do it in such a way that we understand what this is going to cost us. And we die to ourselves and we live the cross-centered life, as Jeremy expounded in Luke chapter 14 uh, this week. We're to live for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. And so it's with that thought then, we move into chapter 10. And again, I looked at chapter 10 and I thought, if I divide this up, we're going to lose all the continuity of this passage. Because it's a single unit with a single thought. And as Gary read it, you might have been wondering, as you heard these words of Scripture, how, what is he saying? How does this connect? And I hope, hope, hope you uh, will arrive at the understanding of how this all works together for God wanting our undivided loyalty for the sake of the advance of the Gospel and His eternal plan in human history. So what we're going to do is look in verses 1-11 through 11, first of all. If you were to drive, they say, I haven't been there, but if you were to drive on the main road in England in central North Cumberland, between Newcastle and on the Scottish border, you would see frequent signs because of the nature of these roads that would say things like 150 accidents last year on this road. Or number of speeding fines last month, 37. And the message is clear. Think about what happened in the past and be careful. Last year, last month, or whatever. Don't become the next part of the statistics, right? And in chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, Paul is very concerned with history repeating itself. 
And one of his goals in this letter, he, which will arrive at a climax in chapter 15, we're getting there, is to get the Corinthians to realize where they are on God's timetable. They are like a, a, a stage of actors here. And they have burst onto the, onto the stage in the middle of a scene. And Paul wants them to realize what act they are in. They need to discover what's happened so far. What's the plot? What's the point of the play? And how the people who play these characters in previous acts, what was their part? And what things did they do wrong? And what things did they write? So that these actors now bursting on the scene, the Corinthians, and now us, can know where our part is. And the question is, are they going to learn this lesson? And he illustrates the lesson they can learn from the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And he brings four elements he draws their attention to in the story of Israel. The cloud, the sea, the food, and the drink. And it's going to become clearer why he does this, but let's look in verses 1-11. through Paul's saying in verses 1-11, through he's saying, I don't want you to forget. I want you to remember these things. Brothers and sisters, I want you to remember our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. And some of you remember from your um, uh, Bible study that Israel was guided by a cloud. God moved the cloud representing His presence and He guided them into the promised land. This cloud moved ahead of them. And in the, one, of the way, one of the places the cloud moved was through the Red Sea, to the, to the shores of the Red Sea. And the enemies of the Egyptians were on their backs. And they, the Israelites thought they were going to be uh, killed by the Egyptians who had been their, their taskmasters before. They had, the Israelites had been slaves to the Egyptians. And God God takes the cloud and he and he and and God brings up a wind and he parts the Red Sea in two and they walk Israel walks through on dry ground as they follow this cloud. And Paul says in the cloud and in the sea you were baptized as followers of Moses. It was a picture that you were immersed into the 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 the, the word of God uh, that had been del- delivered by Moses. You were disciples. You ate the same spiritual food. You drank the same spiritual water. Because that one who was with you all along was the promised Messiah. He says, that spiritual rock that was with you, that rock was Jesus. And what he's doing here is he's comparing what had happened with Israel with what was true with the church today. And he's making the connection that just as Israel went through the sea, obviously go through the sea, but um, just as Israel was fed by God, sustained by God, provided by God, God had showed grace to Israel. So God has shown grace to you, Corinthians. He has cared for you. You are baptized and identified with Jesus. You share in His body uh, and, and His blood in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Lord's Supper. Uh, you are identified with Jesus. He's provided for you. Don't presume on that grace. Don't presume on that grace. And he says this at the end in verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown or destroyed in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent or for the purpose that we should not lust or crave or desire after evil things as they also lusted. 
He's saying these things happen as a warning for us. God wasn't pleased with them. Here they had presumed, and you read the story of Israel over and over again, and you'll find this. Uh, God provided so much for them. He brought them out of Egypt. He provided food for them. He provided the promised land for them. Yet time and time again, you'll find them going back to the old ways of sin, the old life of sin. And what Paul is saying is, don't be like the Israels. God has graciously given you what you need in this new covenant. And Jesus, don't go back. Don't go back. And he says in verse 6 that these things are warning to us so that we won't create evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. And he gives some illustrations here. In verse 7, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ or, or uh, push Try to push God to the limits of His patience. As some of them also tempted and were destroyed as serpents. Either murmur or grumble you as some them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these happen to them for their examples and they are written for our admonition, our instruction upon whom the ends of the world are come. What Paul, Paul is saying here is he's, he's referring to some instances in the life of Israel that though God had provided so much for them, this is how they responded to it. It was a slap in the face of God. He, he talks about their idolatry. And he's, he's quoting Exodus 32.6. And some of you remember when they camped at Mount Sinai after they'd gone through the Red Sea and Moses went up to receive God's law. What did Israel do in the absence of Moses? Well, they fashioned a golden calf and they began to dance and worship that. And that word play there refers to some of the sexual orgies that went on there. Uh, immorality. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Here God had done this and He's providing them His covenant law with them and here's what they're doing. Then He reminds them of the immorality uh, uh, there. And, and, and then He talks about putting the Lord to the test. This story is in Numbers 21, verses 4-9. through 9. The people were testing the Lord and they are grumbling. They're grumbling. And Paul uh, uh, is talking about putting the Lord to the test. He's not, he's not talking about exercising faith in God and seeing what He'll do. He's talking about being presumptuous in your sins. What's interesting here is this idea of grumbling. It's all listed with idolatry and immorality, putting the Lord to the test. Were these Corinthian parties guilty of grumbling? You, you better believe it. When you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 of how they treated their leaders and how they treated the leaders uh, that they love versus leaders they didn't, there was some grumbling that went on and there was some of this that was going on throughout the Corinthian church and it was cancer. And God hated it. And they were engaging and, and grumbling. They were attacking Paul's leadership. They were attacking his apostleship. And all these sins are rooted in idolatry and immorality. Apparently, they thought, because we have seen this, God has provided for us, we take the Lord's Supper, we were baptized, God has provided His grace for us, that they could do whatever they want. That idol worship could be tolerated. And Paul reminds them of the tradition here, the writings here, the, the truth of, of, of Israelite who participated in some of these very things in the Old Covenant way. And fell into idolatry and says, don't fall prey 
to the same thing. And Paul's point is this. All the Israelites had these experiences in the old co- under the Old Covenant. Just as the Corinthians had had in the New Covenant. But God was displeased, and this is a warning to not presume on God's kindness. And why is Paul saying this? Because he's, kind, he's, he's constructing a building. And so he's laying a foundation to build upon that he's going to get toward at the end of the chapter. Uh, and, and the foundation doesn't look anything like what the building's going to look like, right? So that's why there might be some disconnect as to why is, why is Paul bringing this stuff up. Because he's laying the foundation. He's going to challenge the Corinthians. Yes, accept the privilege you have in sharing the, the body and blood of Jesus and sharing the fellowship of other believers and the responsibilities that go with that. But remember... Israel was not an exception to the rule of God's judgment, and you will not be either. In other words, do not presume, brothers and sisters, because you are saved, because you have been baptized, because you share in the community life of the church, because the Spirit is in you, because you partake of the Lord's Supper, that you have reached a level that requires no discipline. Remember chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. So first of all, remember, remember, you're no exception to the rule. I am no exception to the rule. The Corinthians were no exception to the rule. But then he brings up this second word, learn, learn. Remember, now learn. Look what he says in verse 6. These things were our examples. Look what he says in verse 7. Neither be you idolaters, as were some of them. Learn. Then verses 11 through 13, he says this. Now all these things happen to them, the Israelites, for examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Take take, take close attention, close care. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with that temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my beloved, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul is saying, those things happen to them as a warning for us. So that we wouldn't crave the evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. And these things happen as examples. They're written down to warn us. We're the ones who live, Paul's saying, at the end of the age. We're in the end times. The next event on Jesus on the calendar is we're to be ready for Jesus' return. And if you are thinking you're standing strong, Paul says, be careful not to fall. And he reminds us of this. The temptations that you face are no different than what the Israelites faced. And now, as a third audience, our church today, God is saying to us that temptations the Israelites faced were no different from what the Corinthians faced, are no different from what you and I are facing today. These are temptations that are common to man. They're no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. God never allows temptations to be more than you can stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And when you are tempted, God has provided a way out so that you can endure. So that even under trials, you can endure. Paul is writing here, and he's sensitive to his readers, and perhaps maybe they're wondering, well, if God overthrew the Israelites in the wilderness for things like putting the Lord to the test and crumbling? 
Well, hope is there for us. And here's where God's grace comes. God does, want, does never wants us to continue in sin. He never wants us to continue in violations of His clear law. He is gracious and He has provided the way. He has provided the way of escape. He has, he has given us examples to learn from. He has provided uh, um, uh, the way out. And so not wanting to cause despair to His readers, perhaps after this warning of verses 7-10, through 10, He encourages them, He reminds them of the truth of hope that's always available in Jesus Christ. See, he's reminding them that the stories you read in the Bible, the biblical stories, are real. But they are also illustrations of truth. They are parts of a story now that has reached its heights in Jesus and in the people who have come to belong in Him through the Gospel. And, and, and Paul is saying, we live in this period of history where Jesus has, has, has come in history is a fulfillment of the prophecies that the Messiah would come and, 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 the, and we're in this already not yet period here where the, all these things are true of us in Christ but yet we're still looking to when it fully comes when Jesus returns and Paul is saying there's some dangers you have freedom in Christ that comes with the new age of this Holy Spirit. But never let that be confused with license to sin that drags you back into the old life. There's times of testing, but there's no room for pride. And anyone who thinks they are standing, who thinks they're okay, or says, oh, that was just the Israelites. Oh, that's just the Corinthians. Watch out! Because you could fall over is what Paul is saying here in the original language. You will fall flat on your face. And it's like uh, the old age of Israel here and the new age in Christ, the new covenant. They're grinding against each other like plates on the earth. And, and those who think they're standing firm one minute may find they're in an earthquake and fall flat on their face. So Paul says the temptations you're going to run into are common for human beings. But God is Faithful friends, when you are faced with temptation to sin, when you are under the heat of trials in your life, put those letters in gold in your mind. But God is faithful. But God is faithful. Carve those letters in your memory, in your imagination. God provides a way of avoiding the temptation to sin. And God provides a way to endure the trials that you find yourself in. Paul's question then to the Corinthians is implied here. Will you use this? Will you access this grace that God has provided? Will you avail yourself of it? Of the God-given, the grace-filled way out when you need it? And friends, the question for us is, will we? So what are you going to be tempted with this week? What were you tempted with last week? Was it emblazoned on your mind, God is faithful and He has provided a way out? And you divert your eyes back to the Lord and focus on Christ, or we're just looking what you wanted, little old me. And the beauty of this is this: <clears throat> if you lived on a dead end, a cul-de-sac, right? There's no way to get out. You're stuck in the end. But God's path in trials and God's path in the temptations that are around you are not dead-ended. 
He lets you see the door for your exit. And it is the promises of God. The promises of God is God is faithful. He can be trusted. He will, you will, you, you are able to, to, to fight on believers. So learn and apply the provision of grace. Anytime you feel like you have to sin, you miss this truth. God is faithful. Anytime you feel like you can't break that sinful habit, God is faithful. Return to the promises of God. In Pilgrim's Progress, that uh, John Bunyan wrote, Baptist preacher in England in the 1600s, um, it's, a, it's an allegory of, of um, Jesus' disciples working their way in their journey, uh, meeting trials, meeting temptations, on their way to the celestial city, city heaven. And uh, they go off the path because they are not following God's instructions, Christian and his friend, and they uh, uh, find themselves captured by the giant despair. And they're in the dungeon. And they're despairing. What did I do? Why am I in this? Oh, I'm such a failure, etc. And then they remember that before their journey, they were given a key. And this key was the promises of God. And they pull the key out of their sock, and they unlock their shackles, and they unlock the door of despair with the promises of God. And friends, God is faithful. Learn. But thirdly, run. Run. God doesn't desire our learning to be a passive thing so we fill our heads with more knowledge. He says, run. On the basis of this escape, run. And look what he says in verse 14 through 22. He says, friends, flee from the worship of idols. An idol is anything that we worship more than God, that we value higher than what God has said, that we love more than God and His Word. He says, you're reasonable people. Decide if what I'm saying is true. And he brings up, again, getting back to the, to the, to the, to the issue in chapter 8, here of eating meat that has been offered to the idols, um, he gets back to help. He gets back to that in verse uh, uh, sixteen of how to process that. And he says, "When we are thanking the Lord for the cup of the Lord's table, there's a sense that we're sharing in the blood of Christ. We break the bread. We're sharing in the body of Christ. And though we're many, he said, we're eating from one loaf. We're showing that we're one body. And then he says in verse eighteen. Behold Israel after the flesh. Or think about the people of Israel. Physical people of Israel. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers or sharers of the altar? They would eat the sacrifices that were left um, there in their uh, uh, Moses law that they would bring to atone for their sins. The meat that was burned, they would, they would, uh, that was offered in the sacrifice, they would be able to eat there. And Paul says, here's my point in verse 19. Here's what I'm trying to say. That food offered, he's saying, is, is, is food offered to idols, does it have significance? Is he saying idols are real gods? And no, he has said no. In chapter 8 he said idols aren't real gods. We know that an idol that they would worship in that day, made out of stone, some guy chiseled out of stone. And Paul says, that's not a real god. That's, 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 that's a stone, right? Any god you create is not a god. Because you're greater than that god, right? And what Paul is saying is, though, 
What you have to think about is what is behind the idol. What is behind the idol. The idol in itself is nothing. But what is behind it is the evil one. Demons. Verse 20. He says, I don't want you to participate with demons. And he says, when you have the Lord's Supper, it's more than just you know, putting a, uh, a bread in your mouth and, 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 the, and the grape juice in your, in your, in your mouth. It's, we don't look at it that way. We look at it as what it represents, right? And so he says, with the uh, uh, food that has been offered to demons at the worship ceremonies in the temples, yes, it is just food, but when it's associated with a greater layer here, a deeper level, and you are participating in the worship of demons at the temple, that's where you have to draw the line. In a private home or a temple-owned restaurant, eating meat offered idols isn't the problem. But joining in the worship is very different. Paul says, have nothing to do with that. Have nothing to do with that. No identification with that. Because we are loyal to Christ. Paul's saying, you're sensible people. You can understand that if you as worshipers of God start to engage in the temple worship while eating your meat, God's not going to be pleased with that. And how are you going to deal with that? Remember the story of Israel again. When the Jewish people and the Israelites worshipped idols, what did God allow to happen? He allowed, the, first of all, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians to conquer them, destroy their cities, take them captive to exile. And he's saying, do you Christians in Corinth want a sequel to that? Is that what you want? And idol worship... It's one thing to eat the meat, but to participating in the worship, it participating with demons, and we can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. This is what he's saying. And then he says this, the fourth, imitate. 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 Follow me as I am following Christ. Look what he says in verse 23. He's saying to them, You say, in God's grace, I can do anything. But I want to say to you, not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but I say, not everything is beneficial. And Paul says in verse 24, let no man seek his own. Don't be concerned about um, uh, uh, your, your own good, but for the good of others. Every man another's wealth. Every man another's well-being is what that word wealth means. And he's going to bring home the point. He's going to say in verse 25, you can eat the meat that's sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. Why? Because the verse that Jews thank the Lord for their food from, the rabbi said, was Psalm 24, verse 1, which said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns everything. Who made that meat? God made that meat. Where did that meat come from ultimately? God. He provided the grass for that, for that, uh, for that cow, for that beef or whatever. Uh, ultimately, it comes from God. The earth of the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God made that meat. They hijacked it. These temple worshipers, the false worship, hijacked the meat. And so Paul says, you can eat it because it's the Lord's and everything in it. But then he says this. <clears throat> Someone who isn't a Christian, who isn't a believer... Ask you home for dinner. Ask you to go over to their house for dinner. Accept that invitation. 
And maybe you could compare it today like modern day India. Let's say you lived in a Hindu village, right? And they're having one of their Hindu temple feasts. And they invite you over. And Paul says, accept the invitation. Eat what's offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone informs you, an informant says, this meat was offered to an idol. Paul says, don't eat it. Add it a consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might be okay in your mind, conscience for you, matter of conscience for you, but it is not okay for the other person. What Paul is trying to explain is this. It's not about my rights. It's about not making the gospel of Jesus Christ difficult to receive unnecessarily. It's not about my rights, but rather, what will build up the community of Jesus? You think of what Jesus, uh, the, uh, the parable that Jesus gave of the, of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. The Good Samaritan did not seek his own good, did he? He went out of his way. If he had sought his own good, he would continue riding down the hill past the, past the, um, past the uh, beaten Jew. But unlike the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side, what did the Samaritan do? He served the best interests of the unknown wounded man at the side of the road. There's a very interesting word in verse 24. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Or other's wealth. It's a Greek word, heteros. And it has the idea of someone who is different than you. And Paul is is, is urging his readers to reach out and serve the one who is different than you. The person in mind is someone who may have a different native tongue or someone who has a different history or or prioritizes different values in a different order. And Paul uh, uh, has, through the Holy Spirit, has a multicultural church. And he is urging his readers to care for the interests of the others. Friends, if we get that concept... The church of Christ is powerful, isn't it? Paul wrote a whole chapter on this in Philippians chapter 2. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And he connects it to Jesus Christ, who served us, who left heaven's glories, who became a man, who became a slave, a servant, who died a death on the cross. And the ultimate display of servanthood. And freedom in Christ doesn't mean that I am seeking my own fleshly lusts. Here's what freedom in Christ means. It means to be free in Christ in such a way that you can seek to benefit and build up other people. That's what freedom is. So the conversation Paul's giving is this. Paul's saying, as a general principle, I can say all things are lawful to me, but they are not all helpful, nor do they all build up. Corinthians might respond, well, can you give us a general sense of how to apply these two principles? Paul says, yes, I can. Look at these parts of what I said. Regarding being helpful, don't offend Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, he says at the end of the chapter. You gain nothing by pushing people away from the gospel, away from Jesus. Giving offense in this way, that's what offense means, is not helpful. And if you're building up, 
when you do not drive people away from the gospel unnecessarily, the gospel already divides. We understand that. It is already an offense, a stumbling block. But we don't need to give unnecessary offense to that. When you do not offend, you have the opportunity to, to, to commend your message of salvation, your the gospel, and in the process, you're building up the community at large. You're to work at, you're to work at building up, not tearing down. Not all things Paul says are helpful or bring together or in harmony with. Build up. Build up. Paul's talked a lot about building in 1 Corinthians 3. And then he says this. This is his, this is his idea here um, <clears throat> about the meat in the marketplace. Yeah, all meat in the marketplace belongs to God. Not to the idols. Because the entire earth is the Lord's. It all belongs to God who created all things. Alright? So you don't need to be superstitious about it. You need to be fearful about it. And if you eat or do not eat it, give glory to God alone. Do not live in fear. But friends, when you are participating in the worship of that idol, you've crossed the line. And I heard an illustration um, that someone gave this week about Halloween. Now, I don't personally have a problem with Halloween. I realize there's some people who differ with, with me, but I, I don't have a problem in the sense of Halloween with, with my kids dressing up as a fireman, right? Or, uh, or, or you know, a soldier or, or a ballerina and going and collecting candy. I personally don't see anything wrong with that in associations. But uh, this illustration was given where this pastor um, in Michigan uh, took his son uh, trick-or-treating and they went to this particular house that he should have known something wasn't quite right. And the, uh, the, guy, the, the guy of the house shows up uh, with a monster suit and he had um, just a, a hideous monster suit and he had this uh, button on the mask that um, when he pushed the button, blood would come out of the mask. And so the guy's taking his five-year-old son trick-or-treating, right, to the store, and the guy, you know, jumps out with the mask and he pushes the button. And, and that took it to another level, right? It took it beyond a little kid in a fireman suit getting, a, getting candy to now we're, 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 we're exalting to the, the demonic realm, right? He said, that's where I had to draw the line. And we left. And we went home, he said. Alright? Because now there was a participation in that that was not where the Christian was to be or to go. So can we buy idle meat and eat it in the privacy of our homes? Paul says, yes. That all belongs to God anyway. Don't offer to him the glory. Don't forget to offer him the glory. And Paul says, what about idol meat that served to us when we're guests in the home of an unbeliever? Paul says, go ahead and eat it. But then, he says, if you're invited to a meal in the unbeliever's home and someone informs you that the meat is idol food, out of your love for the informant who's trying to be sensitive to what he thinks are your feelings, don't eat the meat. Your freedom should be tempered by love. Perhaps that's another believer who's with you there. Or perhaps that's the unbelievers home you're in and they're saying hey by the way this is idol meat is that okay then at to show um, uh, the the uh, uh, the line between temple worship and participation in Christ Paul says stop don't eat draw that line there and Paul's point is this
how do you live out your life in a fallen world for the glory of God? Friends, not all these answers are cut and dried, are they? And that is why we are given the wisdom of the gospel. To discern between what is good and what is better and what is best. There are many things in life that God could just simply say, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And there are many things in those words that He has, right? But God has given us the Holy Spirit and He has given us the wisdom of His Word to discern in whatever culture, whatever situation we find ourselves out in. There are things that some people are going to land on in different, different, uh, different uh, uh, conclusions, right? But Paul wants you to understand that the overall principle is this. Are you participating in wrong worship? That's the thing. And to give offense is not necessarily hurting someone's feelings. It is to behave in such a way as to prevent someone else from hearing the Gospel or to hear the Word of God or to alienate someone who is already a brother and sister unnecessarily. And Paul is saying, we should not share... If you're wondering where the line is, here is the line. Ready? We should not share in any activity... If we're with an unbeliever, we should not share in any activity with an unbeliever from which he or she will need to turn away from when they're converted to Jesus Christ. That's where the line is. And so freedom doesn't mean that we do whatever we wish with no regard for others. Nor does it always necessarily mean that someone else's conscience dictates our conduct. It's not exactly what he's saying here. What what he is saying is that everything is to be filtered through the glory of God for the sake of the gospel, the good of all, which from Paul's point of view means that they might come closer to Christ and be saved. In verse 33. Look what Paul says. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. Remember, that means to prevent someone from from, uh, coming closer to Jesus Christ. Neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And Paul says, even as I please all men in all things. Does that sound like chapter 9? Right? But why is he doing it? Not because he's just trying to find people that he can make an excuse to, oh, we can do this, we can do that. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So that's why this morning the message is titled, That They May Be Saved. That they may be saved and come closer to Jesus and look more and more like Jesus. That is the filter. Paul is always trying to do what is best for others, not for himself. And he says this, he closes in chapter 11, verse 1. This section actually is with the rest of chapter 10. Be followers, and the word followers is imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. Was Jesus not this way? Did Jesus not leave his home in heaven? Set aside his prerogatives? Set aside what he could have had as rights as King of Kings and Lord of Lords as Creator? Did he not set those things aside to serve humanity? despite their response, to then, though innocent, die on the cross? To die the innocent one for the unrighteous, that He might save many? 
Did He not come to give His life a ransom for many? And cannot we, church, South Hope, believers today, cannot we set ourselves aside for the advance of the Gospel? Paul says, imitate me, copy me, as I am copying Jesus. So it always gets back to the power that's in the Gospel to live this way. That the gospel advances. That there is undivided loyalty. So the gospel advances in God's eternal plan in human history. We have the same God of Israel, the same God of Corinth, the same God today. He has provided the way of escape to say no to ourselves and to say yes to his mission. Will we say yes? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take the truths of your word. Thank you for that the promises by God made in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus the Messiah have been fulfilled with Jesus. He is anointed by God at his baptism as Messiah. He began his ministry at his baptism. He worked his ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. He was crucified according to the purposes of God. He was raised from the dead, appeared to His disciples. He exalted and given the name Lord. He gave the Holy Spirit to form His church, the new community of God. It will come again for judgment. And all who hear the message of Jesus should be reminded of that and repent and be identified with Jesus and His church. Lord, I pray that You would make Jesus magnified in our midst. Use us for Your glory, for Your sake, for Your holiness, for the holiness You have imprinted on us to mirror the beauty of Jesus and the power of the Gospel for change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, I'm going to have uh, Linda coming up to the front here as the sole representative here of the Champion family. and They're headed out on Thursday to China. God opened up the door through a teaching English in a second language class that they were taking at a local college to connect with a Chinese student here and begin a conversation about the Gospel and Jesus. A Chinese student uh, claims to be an atheist, but seems to be becoming more and more tender to the truth of Jesus. So they're going to connect with her family over there. You can correct any of this that I'm not getting, getting, getting right. And uh, then they're going to, uh, after that, uh, look for opportunities in Vietnam before they then land in Burma. And so we just want to have a word of prayer for, for Don and Linda. And if I can have uh, Mr. May um, here as our deacon, and Nick as one of the representatives on our, on our missions um, committee come and just have a word of prayer for for uh, Don and Linda. Don, of course, is not feeling well today. As I said, he's sick uh, in bed with a cold, and they're leaving on Thursday. And any of you know who've flown in an airplane with a cold, how miserable that is. Um, we we'll pray that the Lord will uh, will use their time here. And so, Nick, and then where you guys will pray. Father, Lord, we lift up Don and Linda this morning before you, Lord, that you would uh, give them 
how Lord that Don would be feeling okay as they as they prepare to, to leave. Uh, Lord, just that you would give them the physical strength and endurance that they need for the journey that you have in front of them, Lord. But um, Lord, maybe definitely more important, Father, to give them the spiritual strength they need for the journey they have in front of them. Lord, would you give them the words to say, give them the opportunities you want them to have, Father, give them the uh, just a chance to, to truly pour your truth and your gospel into the lives of uh, both believers and unbelievers, Lord. And think of this this young Chinese student who they're going to have the opportunity to meet with and meet with her family, Lord. Would you just soften the hearts of their family, that family, and help them, Lord, to understand just the incredible truths found in your word, Lord, and in the gospel. Father, we lift up on Linda this morning as your servants will going out into the world. And Father, we just ask for a blessing on them, and we ask for the blessing of your word uh, and, and your ministry through them. In Christ's name, amen. My Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Praise you, O God, for your great salvation. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for all the wonder and our ministries. God, I pray. Now, for God, raise you physically. And I do pray, oh God, for this family that they are confident to be prepared in their hearts, even now, oh God. They might grow out of any forsaken. Oh God, they might realize that our salvation cannot be worked for, but it has to be by faith. And oh God, I pray, even today. People that are here, and we thought they might realize that Jesus Christ was there. He gave himself for them. The Lord God that they need to, by faith, receive salvation. We thank you, Christ, Lord God. Each one of our missionaries, we thank you, Lord Having the opportunity, Lord God, as a people. To send these out, Lord God, that they might be in a place that you have them to be Lord God, to thank them for you. We ask you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Lord, we as a congregation say amen. Thank you for what we do. Jesus, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sure, go ahead. Thank you, my brother. It's remarkable what's happened with Gagne. She's the girl that came to our house for Christmas and then her parents came to Maine and stayed with us. But she has made Christian friends since she was with us. And through those Christian friends, 